Thank you, Jared. It's an honor to be with you. I do have to say I'm a little bit confused because I know Bob gave me a topic in a text, and then Joel came and uh, found me and has a totally different plan for me. I was very confused. I said, Joel, what about Bob? And he said, Bob, Bob and his kids, they can fend for themselves. So that's just between me and Joel, actually. Y'all are here just for observing us in our friendship, which is very strange, even though I thank God for it. I am glad to be here with you. It is an honor to be at this conference. I've been part of Sovereign Grace um, since I was 15 years old, I think, and been coming to many conferences. Just a brief, by way of reminder, I'm a pastor, so by way of reminder, before, uh, before we turn to our text in this morning, I have been to many conferences over the years, and I am grateful for them. I can think of significant moments in my spiritual life that have taken place at conferences. Um, Jeff Perswell at a Worship God conference preaching on the desire of God to dwell with his people, a sermon that I will never forget. Um, But I've been coming to conferences long enough that over those years, some of the people who have stood with me at conferences and appeared deeply affected and praised loudly and experienced conference highs no longer confess the name of Christ. So here's my reminder to you as we're at a conference. Conferences are a blessing, but conferences fade, and the word of God endures forever. And the churches created by the word of God endure forever. Not individual churches, but the church. And one of the markers of our spiritual health is not what we experience at a conference, but what we think about Sunday. So here's my exhortation to you. Save your voice, save your best affections, Sunday is coming. Far more than what we might experience here, the the eschatological drumbeat, the ticking of salvation's clock takes place one Lord's day at a time as we gather in our churches and do what we're doing here, maybe with a big band, maybe with a very small band. But save your affections, the conference is passing, but Sunday is coming. And we get to gather in local churches and proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. That's my exhortation before we turn to our text, which is Psalm 90. And I have called attention even in saying that to one feature of our conference days. They're passing. We're halfway through the conference. That's the most observable feature about every day we experience. It passes. Our days pass. Our weeks pass. Our months pass. Our Years pass, our lives pass. What should those passing years teach us? What should that experience, that universal human experience of the passing of our days, what should it teach us? What is it intended by God to drive home into our hearts and souls? And put it in a word, in a sentence, it's this. To find in God what you cannot find in this life. The point of our passing days, the purpose, what they are meant to teach us, is to find in God what we cannot find anywhere else. But now we can say that at this point, but to feel the full weight of that, we need the Lord's word to be brought to bear on our passing days. 
We're going to do that in a moment with an inspired poem, a psalm about time, the eternity of God and our passing days. But before we go there, I want to set the stage by turning to a poem that's not inspired, but that captures much uh, of the heart of what we're going to look at this morning. It's not an ordinary poem. It's not an ordinary man who has written this poem at an ordinary time in his life. The time, as tradition has it, is October 29th, 1618. And the man who's writing the words that we're about to pen is Sir Walter Raleigh, who has been the favorite of queens, explorer of continents, military hero, but he has run afoul of changing political winds, and he is in the Tower of London, awaiting his execution. And as tradition has it, he penned these words the night before he was beheaded. Even such is time that takes in trust our youth, our joys, and all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our day. Not our text, but it's close to the spirit of our text. It's not all there is to that poem. We'll come back to it. That's not all there is to say about our days. But there's not less to say than what we just read. Now, be honest. At this point, is there part of you thinking, who on earth invited this guy? (laughs) Welcome Eeyore to the conference. (laughs) There's something in us that hears a poem like that and wants to push back. We have phrases with which we push back reminders like that. Seize the day. Live strong. Try having those arguments with this poem in a cemetery. There's not, there is more to be said, but there's not less. You hear what that poem says about our time, our passing days? What what are the times that we have? It's that thing that takes our youth, our joys, our all, and what does it give back? Earth and dust. And eventually shuts up the story of our days in a dark and silent grave. What is that meant to teach us? And what are those passing days meant to teach us? To find in God what we cannot find anywhere else. But now let's let God's poem God's authorized word, shape how we think about that. Psalm 90, verse one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before you our secret sin in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. 
we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Lord, as we sit before your unchanging, enduring forever word, may it make us wise. Or let your word have its intended effect to turn us away from false refuges, vain hopes, promises that cannot deliver, saviors that will fail. May it draw us to seek in you what we cannot find anywhere else. That Christ Jesus might be glorified in our living and our dying. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If we were to summarize the movement of the psalm, it would be through three main, four main declarations. We'd call them verses if it was a song, but verses are going to confuse us because they're verse numbering. We're going to call them four stanzas, four declarations that move us through what Moses, the author of this psalm, intends for us to think about our passing time. First declaration, our God is eternal, verses one and two. There's familiar lines in this psalm. I'm sure as you... Most of you are familiar, and as you read it, you can hear some of the songs and hymns that we have written from this. Don't let the familiarity of the words steal their power from us. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. This is a psalm of Moses, who spent his entire life leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. That's a poignant prayer then, isn't it? Lord, as we wander in the wilderness, you still have been our dwelling place, the place in which we find our home, though we do not yet have our promised home. You are our dwelling place. And then he speaks of in all generations. I've said this is a a psalm about time. Generations is a subtle way of bringing that reminder onto the stage. He could have said, you've always been our dwelling place. But that doesn't catch the note of passing that's saying from generation to generation, in all generations, captures. I felt this powerfully just in the last month holding my children at the funeral of my grandma. Four generations, my grandmother was a believer, four generations gathered, and I found myself thinking, Lord, Be my children's dwelling place 
as you have been the dwelling place for my grandmother for decades and now eternally. Our dwelling place from generation to generation. There's the beginning of the theme of time. Then he says this, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth of the world or anything else in between, before that, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You might say the time scale here is BC, before creation. It's as far back as words can reach us. And yet, Moses does something surprising there in the way he ends that sentence. Before, 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 from everlasting. Do you feel that contrast? Perhaps the best illustration I've ever seen of that contrast came to me about nine years ago when my wife and I were uh, visiting Scotland. And we had the, the joy of, during that, joy for a person like me who likes wild, inhospitable places, uh, of traveling to the north of Scotland and then off the coast to the Orkney Isles, which are far north islands off the coast of Scotland. And we visited there a settlement called Scarabray. It is a 5,000-year-old intact settlement um, dating back to prehistoric times. No joke, it's on a guy's farm. It's an old farm in Scotland, so it, he's been there 200 years, this farm has. The, the village has been completely covered until a storm in the late 1800s blew in and knocked the peat and dirt off, and there was a village. Imagine what the guy thought that morning at breakfast. That was my pasture. What is that? They preserved it so that you can see this intact village, the, um, the rock dwellings, the homes, and one of the most uh, powerful demonstrations of the, the antiquity of this site is on the path walking out to it. So you come, you go to the visitor center, you get information about the site, and then there's an exit out the back door. After you pay your tickets, of course, you go out the back door, and a couple steps out the back door, there's a marker along the path. It had some... Um, historical detail from World War II, maybe Dunkirk or something like that. You take a few more steps and you begin to see more historical markers. Declaration of Independence. Nod to the Americans, I suppose. You keep walking. You find, this one struck me, Solomon's Temple. You keep walking. You pass Stonehenge. You pass the pyramids. You keep walking. And you finally arrive at the site. It's a living timeline. If you were going to go back through the years and arrive at this site, this is what you would pass through. All these events, things that are as old as we think things can get, and then you go past, and there it is. Now you notice what Moses does here in the psalm is not walk along that path, find the marker, creation of the world, and then walk a little farther and plant the beginning of God. He says, walk that path all the way to the point where you arrive at the creation of the world and you don't find another marker. You find the infinite abyss that is the everlasting God. He is not on the timeline. He is the creator of time. As one theologian put it, time is a creaturely mode of existence. And God is not a creature. That puts getting things into perspective, into perspective, doesn't it? We say that and we mean allow some time to pass, a week, 
month, year, if we're really historically conscious, allow a generation to pass. How about consider time from the perspective of the one for whom time is but a work of his hands? Our God, Moses says, is everlasting. Though don't miss the the juxtaposition of those two things. He is everlasting and he is our God. He is from of old, in fact, from of all times, God is. And yet we can call him our dwelling place. That's where Moses begins as he's going to meditate on time. Our God is everlasting. But second main declaration, our times are passing. Because he moves, verse 2, from the everlasting nature of God to this statement. You, God, return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now, if you're an alert reader of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, that language calls something to mind. That is Genesis 3 language. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Same word, same imagery of dust. The contrast could not be more striking, could it? An everlasting God and human beings under this decree return. And then he begins to speak of God's perspective on our passing time. A thousand years are like yesterday or a watch in the night. You sweep them away like a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the Morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. You notice the movement and scale of time words. A thousand years are like a day. Man is like a morning. That's the verdict. That's the overarching perspective on human existence ever since Genesis 3. What is the sum of our living and dying, return, O man, to dust. Now again, there's something in us, isn't there, that doesn't want to accept that verdict over our lives. How much of our culture's energy is dedicated towards attempting to forget this or actively work against it? Everything from the health industry to cosmetic surgery, to, if you had enough money, something called longevity studies. You might not know this, but Silicon Valley has dedicated itself to reversing this verdict, return, O man. If you had enough money, that rebellion against this might sound something like this. man wrote this article for the New Yorker several years ago. The headline is this, Silicon Valley's quest to live forever, followed by the question, can billions of dollars worth of high-tech research succeed in making death optional? Here's what the writer describes this evening that he participated in. On a velvety March evening in Mandeville Canyon, high above the rest of Los Angeles, Norman Lear's living room was jammed with powerful people eager to learn the secrets of longevity. When the symposium's first speaker asked how many people there wanted to live to 200 if they could remain healthy, almost every hand went up. Understandably, then, the Moroccan Philo chicken puffs weren't going fast. The venture capitalists were keeping slim to maintain their imposing vitality. 
The scientists were keeping slim because they'd read, and in some cases done, the research on caloric restriction, and the Hollywood stars were keeping slim because, of course. Yet the premise of the evening was that answers to this problem of longevity, and maybe even an encompassing solution, were just around the corner. The party was the kickoff event for the National Academy of Medicine's grand challenge in healthy longevity, which will award at least $25 million for breakthroughs in the field. Jun Yun, a doctor who runs a healthcare hedge fund, announced that he and his wife had given the first $2 million toward funding the challenge. I have the idea, he says, that aging is plastic, that it's encoded. If something is encoded, you can crack the code. To growing applause, he went on, if you can crack the code, you can hack the code. Then the author says this, it's a big ask. More than 150,000 people die every day the majority of aging-related diseases. Now, pause. Every time I read that line, I think, what we should add is 150,000 people, which amounts to 100% of the human population, <laughs> dies eventually. Yet, he believes, if we can hack the code correctly, thermodynamically, there should be no reason we can't defer entropy, decay, indefinitely. We can end aging forever. There's the power of Silicon Valley with enough money behind it. And then on the other side, we have this sovereign decree. Return, O oh man, to dust. Now, I'm not really worried that any of you here have invested millions of your dollars in this hedge fund trying to beat longevity. If you have, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do carry this fear, though, that many of us don't have the money to do that, but we'd like somehow for that to happen. Or better, we'd just like not to have to think about the kind of realities that make people without God invest all their money in trying to live forever. See, it's possible to not think about the fact that your days are passing until you have no days left. It's possible even to be a Christian and to sing Christ our hope in life and death and think that's just a pair we put together. Heaven and earth, morning and evening, life and death. It's poetic, but not realize what we're saying. In Christ, we both live and die. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't have that certainty, here's what happens to you. You lack ballast. Do you know that word? That's the weight in a ship's hold that keeps it from rocking with every tip of the waves. I remember thinking back at the beginning of the pandemic when COVID was more than just an inconvenience, but at least potentially we were thinking might be lethal for everyone who caught it. And I remember hearing Christians begin to speak and speak of the degree of spiritual energy that they are putting into praying and asking the Lord to deliver them from getting this virus. And yet, I have the thought, even if God does that, at some point, you're still going to die. If return to dust shatters all of your hopes and dreams, you need better hopes and dreams. You need the ballast that comes from knowing what we mean when we say Christ is our hope in life and in death. 
part of what this psalm is meant to do. Make us stare this reality in the face. Our God is everlasting, but our times are passing. And we will not escape that. But that might raise a question for you. Why? Why would this be? In fact, let's think biblically. Why in a world that God says is very good would our times be passing? And that takes us to the next main declaration from this text. Our God is eternal, our times are passing, and our passing is judgment. Moses begins to bring that out at the end of verse 7. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Why would God be angry and wrathful towards his people? Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Do you see the progression? Our iniquities, the things we know, even our secret sins, the ones no one else knows, perhaps even the ones that we're not aware of, they are all exposed to the searching light of God's face. They are in his presence. And Moses knows that brings the wrath of God. Now, I know that raises a question. Don't we sing about no longer being under the wrath of God? We'll come to that. Hang on. But connect this with where Jeff began us in Exodus. Do you, do you feel the poignancy and the power of what Moses says here? He has watched the iniquities of the people of the Lord bring the wrath of God down upon them. He has pleaded with the Lord, do not leave us, do not consume us in your anger. We are a stiff-necked people. And that experience in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings was not a one-off, one-time event. It is what happens when a holy God is in covenant with an unholy people. The wrath of God against our sins and iniquities cannot be covered over or avoided. Now, briefly address that objection or that question. Wait a minute. Doesn't the gospel deliver us from the wrath of God? Does this no longer apply as it did to Israel? There is definitely more to be said, and we'll come to that by the end of this psalm. But, there is one aspect in which we still are dwelling under, living under the wrath of God. It's this, our physical embodied existence. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Since Genesis 3, we are living under the curse of death. Not, be absolutely clear, not that when a believer or even an unbeliever dies that we are to draw a direct connection between a particular sin and that death. There may be occasions where it's obvious, yes, that's the case. It is more generally the presence of sin itself brings the entire human race under the wrath of God. And every funeral proclaims it. Our passing is judgment. The everlasting God who created a good world in which he dwelt in fellowship with his people has responded in righteous, appropriate, 
measured, not flying off the handle, wrath to human sin with this decree, return, O man. Our passing is not merely inevitable, just the flip side of birth, death. No, it is judgment. And so Moses then says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses, more importantly, God, as the divine author of this psalm, wants you to consider every time we encounter the dust of death, the power of God's anger over human sin, and to wonder how can we escape from this judgment? I find it ironic reading someone describing wanting to live forever the question occurs, why would you want to live forever in this world? Because look what Moses says in verses nine and 10. What are all our years under this verdict of judgment? Toil and trouble. Their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. You begin to feel why this psalm is making us find, look for, something in God that we can't find here. Because you can find no corner of human experience, no magic insight, no technology, no power that will escape this verdict, return to dust. Because it is a sovereign verdict of God pronounced upon our human sinfulness, collectively together and individually. Our times are passing and that passing is judgment. Now, why would God inspire a psalm on this theme? To make us wise. Verse 12, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. What does it mean to number your days? It's what Moses has been doing throughout this psalm for us. Years, Days, mornings, nights, number them, they're passing. Number them that by God's word, you might become wise. So that then you are forced to the place to feel the last great declaration of this psalm. Our God is eternal, our times are passing, our passing is judgment, but finally, our future is in God. The psalm turns from description of human life, beginning in verse 13, to a series of imperatives, petitions. We might summarize what Moses is about to pray for here, three words, presence, joy, and permanence. He begins, he prays for the presence of the Lord. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. It's significant that that's the same verb pronounced over the human race. Return to dust, to which Moses responds, Lord, return to us. And hear this in light of the Exodus, the golden calf incident, all that Moses has prayed and interceded for the people of Israel. They have, Lord, if you don't go up with us to the promised land, it is not a promised land. Return, Lord. Return in pity upon us. Give us your presence. 
not just give us more years. Lord, however many years we have, give us years with you. Give us your presence, Lord. And then what will be the result of that presence of the Lord? It will be joy. It's a striking turn in a psalm with this tone, isn't it? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad for all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Come to us, Lord, with your presence so that we will have joy. I want to linger here for a moment. Some of you, perhaps, you feel the weight of the first part of this psalm. And we make the turn with Moses in the text to joy, and you think, I can't go there. I can't go there yet, at least. There's a kind of way of talking about joy in the shadow of a graveyard that is trite, Pollyanna-ish, it's worthless. Just be happy. You notice what Moses is doing. He is not whistling in the graveyard. He is praying in the graveyard. Catch the difference in tone. And if you're here this morning, as you sit under the word of God, and you would say, I am familiar with the dust of death. Perhaps you have recently laid a loved one to rest. Or there was a call, the proverbial call from the doctor, bringing death and mortality right in front of you. Or perhaps it's just trials, which is the late David Pallison said, every trial and suffering carries with it the sting of death. If you're there in that place, and this turn to joy feels difficult, here's what you need to know. Notice where Moses turns in the wilderness or in the graveyard for joy. He turns to God. You cannot manufacture this. Nor is it a lie or a lack of faith to say, right now I have no joy in and of myself. Any more than the person arising well before dawn and outside, waiting for the sun to rise, might say, it is very dark and it is cold. And it doesn't feel like light will ever penetrate this darkness. That's not a lie. That's not a lack of faith. What becomes the turn to a lie and a lack of faith is to conclude the sun will never rise. The darkness and the cold might be real for you right now, but notice what Moses is doing. If in effect, if I can take that metaphor he says, point east. When joy comes, here's where it will come from. The Lord and nowhere else. If you're here this morning and this turn to joy leaves you behind, hear the Lord's counsel, point east. When joy comes, when joy comes with the morning, it will come from the Lord and the Lord alone. And you cannot manufacture it, but you can wait for it. I wonder also, though, there, there's, a, there's a poignant phrase in there. Make us glad for as many years as we have seen evil. That is a poetic shorthand 
for encountering all that we encounter in a Genesis 3 world. And do you hear the affirmation of this psalm? You will see evil, but you can taste joy. In your days, you will see evil. You can't escape it. And I wonder perhaps if for some of you, many spiritual ills could be traced back to this source. A desperate attempt to control some way the future so that you don't see evil. If I figure out how to do this, perhaps even goes like this. If I can find the will of the Lord, I won't have to face that pain. Let Moses make you wise by freeing you from that fear. There is no path you can take that escapes seeing evil. There is no way to avoid tears, sorrows, and sighing until the day those are wiped away forever. But you can really taste joy even as you see evil. We can expend an enormous amount of spiritual energy. Our thoughts can be occupied, our late night musings or our early morning ponderings with trying to avoid somehow a road that takes me by evil. It will come. Pray, Lord, make me glad in the days and years in which I will see evil. Presence, joy, and then lastly, permanence. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Beyond our lifespan, Lord, let something take place. What is that? Let your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands. You might say, as he wraps up, here's what Moses is praying. Lord, I want you and the joy that you bring and I want it to last. Establish the work of our hands. May this endure. What should those passing years teach us? Like Moses, to look at our passing years and then turn to God for what we cannot find anywhere else. Presence, joy, and permanence. We're almost done. But here's the question we have to ask at this point. Did God answer Moses' prayer? Don't, don't give the Sunday school answer. Think about it. Did Moses experience permanence? You remember his life story. Jeff alluded to it last night. This is the man who intercedes with God, has a face-to-face -face encounter covered in a rock on a mountain with God. And yet this is the man who dies outside the promised land on another mountaintop. Moses pleads, let this work endure. And he experiences the presence of the Lord and the joy of the Lord, but he dies in the wilderness. And flip through the remaining pages of your Old Testament, and you will find presence in joy, but you will not find permanence. 
The glory cloud descends and the glory cloud leaves. The temple is built and the temple is rejected. And so Moses' experience of dying on a mountaintop appears to be emblematic of the entire experience of the people of God. What will change this condition under the wrath of God? When will permanence come? Did God answer Moses' prayer? Not in Psalm 90, and not in the pages of the Old Testament, but in the pages of the gospel. When Moses, the man who had a mountaintop experience with God, was granted one more mountaintop experience. When Moses and Elijah are allowed on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses' prayer, let me see your work, is answered in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the permanent work of God that changes the experience of saints under the verdict of judgment. And in that moment, Moses ascends back into heaven and the Lord Jesus descends the mountain and makes his way to Jerusalem to die on a cross so that permanence could be granted to the people of God forever. Our times are passing, but when we sing Christ our hope in life and death, it's not just a phrase. It is the future God has given us in Jesus Christ. Do you have the ballast in your soul that comes from knowing that? By faith not yet by sight, by faith. In him, we live and move and have our being. In Christ, we live. In Christ, we die. All that is to say, that poem we began with does apply to us, but not merely in the part I read. Because it would appear that Sir Walter Riley was a believer. Because the full poem goes like this. Even such is time that takes and trust our youth, our joys, and all we have and pays us but with age and dust who in the dark and silent grave when we have wandered all our ways shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory and a future in Jesus Christ our Lord, in life and in death. Let's pray together.